religious leaders to discuss the schismatic situation in our denomination caused by the adoption of the so-called traditional plan at a general conference in February. Those of you that have followed this will recall that this plan doubles down on our church discipline's proscriptions concerning homosexuality and by implication the entire LGBTQ community creating an untenable outcome for very many United Methodist congregations in the U.S. and certainly for Christ Church. As you might imagine, a meeting with 600 participants is an unwieldy body to make decisions, and indeed no specific plans were adopted. We did, however, agree to four principles as we return to our local geographies to organize specific strategies for likely group disaffiliations from the new denominational norms. These are the four principles that we agreed on. One, we long to be passionate followers of Jesus Christ, committed to a Wesleyan vision of Christianity, anchored in scripture and informed by tradition, experience, and reason as we live a life of personal piety and social holiness. Two, we commit to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in all forms and toward all people and build a church which affirms the full participation of all ages, nations, races, classes, cultures, gender identities, sexual orientations, and abilities. Three, we reject the traditional plan approved at General Conference 2019 as inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ and will resist its implementation. And four, we will work to eliminate discriminatory language and the restrictions and penalties in the discipline regarding LGBTQ persons. We affirm the sacred worth of LGBTQ persons, celebrate their gifts, and commit to being in ministry together. So those are the four principles that we've agreed to and that will guide our future work. Along with Christ Church member Karen Prudente, I'm now participating in conversations in the New York region to create opportunities for structural outcomes that provide unfettered welcome, acceptance, and empowerment of all persons, period. There's nothing concrete to report on that front yet, but all roads will eventually lead to the next general conference in May of next year. In the meantime, work and negotiating will be moving forward. I say all of that, though, for your information, but also as backdrop, because there's a small personal matter I want to report today. Ever since that February meeting, it led to such a disastrous outcome orchestrated by a minority of the U.S. delegation in concert with a majority of the international delegation, I have surprised myself with renewed, focused, and positive energy. You know, I'm coming into just the last 
segment of my professional life as I turn 67 in August. 72 is mandatory retirement in our denomination. A majority of clergy leave before that point. And over the last year or two, I have been chewing on how these latter years should flow with my wife Melissa retiring officially at the end of next school year. But here's the thing. Since February, I've never been clearer about my faith and work. I've never been clearer about the mission of the church. I've never been clearer about the radical implications of loving God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. I've never been clearer about my particular gifts and skill sets at this particular moment. I've never been clearer about faith's redemptive power. I am feeling relevant and keyed in to what matters most in a very fresh way. And honestly, honestly, this has come to me as a bit of a surprise. It falls into the category of life is what happens when you're busy planning something else. Now, I don't want to overstate this, but it seems the disastrous turn of events has renewed the essence of my call. Go figure. It was counterintuitive. I wasn't expecting it. Now, I can't say for certain what this means, but on the short run, it seems to mean that I want to see this thing through to help steer the church to the other shore over the perilous rapids below. Now, Christ Church is stable and well-positioned as a local congregation, but, but in the meantime, the Christian church in its many forms in the United States is facing a cultural tsunami. You've heard and read the statistics of decline of interest in organized religion, battles for denominational identity like we're experiencing in the United Methodist Church exacerbate this problem. Still, for all of that, I have never felt clearer about the essential necessity of following after the way Jesus blazed, the gospel of grace and truth and love. It seems to me the message we bear matches the need of our current moment exactly. Life is funny in this regard, isn't it? I mean... Often when we hit a roadblock or an obstacle or stumble into a difficult set of circumstances, we have to make a path without clear sight. And in the making, we are reshaped by the hardship and emerge renewed and empowered and more competent and capable. As the old cliche has it, no pain, no gain. The engine of resilience. By the way, resilience is probably the best predictor there is for someone's eventual success in life, however success is defined. In here we affirm what we heard Paul write to his friends in Rome. Since we are justified by faith, he said, we parenthetically actually boast in our sufferings 
knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. You know what? I believe that. I believe that. Paul has this right. And as many of you have discovered firsthand, have discovered firsthand, this has powerful personal meaning in the cancer ward or the police station, in the aftermath of an employment fiasco or a divorce or a death or a financial setback. And it has great meaning for those suffering injustice and deprivations of every sort. Faith in our God of grace, who knew suffering himself firsthand, is also faith in the God of resurrection hope. And that hope reveals that nothing in life or in death will be able to separate us from God's great love. Nothing. We are God's. Always have been, always will be. And this truth dignifies our lives no matter our age or condition. When describing her faith, poet and civil rights activist Maya, Maya Angelou said, I believed that there was a God because I was told it by my grandmother and later by other adults. But when I found that I knew not only that there was God, but that I was a child of God, when I understood that, when I comprehended that, more than that, when I internalized that, when I ingested that, I became courageous. She ingested the truth the Apostle Paul wrote about. And you know, friends, that sort of faith seeps way down into our cellular membranes where a kind of awesome alchemy occurs, transforming frail flesh with resilient courage no matter what comes up. That's why Paul can say we actually boast in our sufferings. Now, in Maya Angelou's case, much of what she expressed was nurtured in and through the struggle for America's soul as a result of its original sin, racist slavery, a struggle we have not yet finished with. One of her highly prized poems, I Still Rise, was read at Nelson Mandela's inauguration as president of South Africa. And you will remember he was elected after serving how many years in prison? Do you remember? 26 years in prison during apartheid. Somehow during those years, look at this, somehow during those years, his suffering produced endurance, and his endurance produced character, and his character produced hope that in turn produced an astonishing capacity for forgiveness and reconciliation and a gracious magnanimity the likes of which we have not seen since. As you heard in Proverbs, wisdom 
is presented with a feminine voice, another image of God, actually, that we long to hear. Well, here's another woman's voice of wisdom. The poem, I Still Rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may tread me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room? Just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries. Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard because I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard? You may shoot me with your words, you may cut me with your eyes, you may kill me with your hatefulness, but still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history, out of the huts of history, shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise into daybreak that's wondrously clear. I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Now in the main, this was not a message expressly about America's original sin, although that's a topic that necessarily must recur for American Christians. Instead, this is a sermon about resilience, about the life energy that's available to us in the midst of many crushing difficulties. And it's about especially faith. A resurrection faith that calls us into a future imbued with hope. I am very hopeful. Very hopeful. Faith and clarity have come. About our mission, our direction, who we are, whose we are, what we're about, what we're supposed to do. 
Do you feel it? God will have the day. 